Welcome to Our Tribe, the podcast that sits down with Jewish professionals and entrepreneurs to hear their stories, share their advice, and bear their Jewish souls. Now here's your host, Rabbi Tovia Kopsty. Welcome back to Our Tribe, the podcast. I am your host, Tuvia Kopstein. And do we have a treat for you today? Yes, we have a treat for you today. We are going to sit down with Matt Sweetwood. Matt is somebody who professionally took his parents' electronic wholesale business and built it into what the world knows now as Unique Photo. Tremendous story there. And Matt exited from Unique Photo. He, he wrote a book. And the, why did he write a book? He wrote a book because he had a tumultuous marriage and he had to raise five kids out of this broken marriage where there were legal battles that went all the way to the supreme court and he did it successfully he created successful kids who are healthy citizens of the world and he has a lot to say about that in the meantime after he exited he started a consulting business he created greener he started, became the CEO of Greener Processes, which takes exhaust and emissions and makes them safe for the environment and helps people in that regard. And in the, the whole time that Matt talks about his tumultuous personal life and business life, he was rediscovering his spiritual connection, his Jewish connection, and you'll get a lot of that on this podcast as well. You know, we're going to love this. Now, before we start, I must say, as I always do, that Podcast Fellowship is what is behind our tribe, the podcast. That is podcastfellowship.org. It's an international Jewish outreach nonprofit, which helps Jewish young adults listen to podcasts that discuss Torah wisdom, Jewish wisdom, their heritage, and they listen to it and they process it and they teach it with to a mentor. They discuss it with the mentor and earn a stipend each time, each week that they do this, podcastfellowship.org. Please check it out. In the meantime, enjoy this fascinating and fun podcast with Matt Sweetwood. Okay, we are thrilled to be here with Matt Sweetwood. How are you doing today, Matt? Rabbi, I am doing fantastically. Thank you for asking. And how are you today? I'm doing much better. We, uh, the audience doesn't know, but we had to reschedule this one because I was not feeling well. Now I'm feeling so much better and very happy to be here with you. And Matt, Matt, let's start. Let's start from the beginning. Let's can can you take us back and take us slowly through your whole professional story and your Jew how weave it in with your Jewish story. Sure. I, I know it's it's difficult, maybe, but but I, we'd like to hear it all. No, talking about myself is one of my favorite topics, so this should be very easy for me. You have a lot in common with uh, with uh, the world. Yeah, it's, with the world, <laughs> right? I've um, I've increased my level of narcissism. Um, proportionately to how it's gone on in the world. It's actually a pretty good topic to talk about, but let's stick to me to start with. Okay. So I was born um, and raised in New Jersey um, to two parents who grew up in Brooklyn. They are, this is always in dispute what you call first generation, but they were first generation, meaning they were first born here. Mm -hmm. um, their parents came from Poland and Russia um, you know, when you do my uh, here, wait, I have to give you my authenticity moment. So I did the 23 and me thing. And um, and it basically says I am 99 point something percent Ashkenazi Jew, which means that like for eight generations on both sides, they all came from this little postage stamp um, size area somewhere between Poland and Russia or whatever, whatever in there. And that wasn't a surprise, right? You, that's what you expected the results would be, no? I, quite frankly, 
Okay. My parents came from a generation where they did not talk much about their past. I, I mean, there's still stuff I don't know about my mom and dad because they just never, they just never talked about it. And I lost, I am sure, lots of relatives in the Holocaust. So essentially, from an extended family perspective, not not much here. So I, I, as a matter of fact, I'm sort of dueling with my brother right now. He has this whole trove of pictures where, I mean. You know, they're in full garb, you know, like you right out of Fiddler on the Roof kind of pictures. And um, uh, and he's got he's supposed to get them to me so I can get them to my kids and so on. But my parents came here and they they were like the, um, the from the story of Passover. They're like the wicked ones because they sort of shunned Judaism when I grew up. They were like, we're American. We're here to make money. You're a Jew. You know it. Go do your thing. And that was really there. And it's no better example of that than um, the fact that their first language, both of them, was Yiddish. Mm-hmm. Both of them didn't teach me or my brother a word of it. Wouldn't mm-hmm. only used it to spoke to speak, you know, amongst themselves. Yeah. Um, they would do business. They were in uh, the uh, wholesale electronics business. So the business itself was very, he would, I would, my dad and mom would be talking in Yiddish to, to the other people in the business um, not the executives, though, at the major companies who, you know, were not so Jewish friendly, um, which is why my mom took the name Mary Robertson. But that's a whole another story um, in business, in business. Um, so we were raised I was raised in a completely secular, you know, no, never. I never had a bar mitzvah, mm-hmm. never learned Hebrew, never had essentially any connection other than my parents sort of telling me that there were a few Jewish kids where I went to school in New Jersey, but I was really disconnected from them, didn't fit in. See, this is why it really goes wrong for you because you don't, I was called a Jew by the other kids in class, but I didn't really feel like I fit in with with them. I didn't know what they were doing. And um, it caused, you know, some issues in my life as I went on. Um, eventually I'll get to the end of the story and then we can come back to the middle. The end of the story is I became chairman of the board of the ACE center in Manhattan, which is one of the largest Jewish outreach organizations in the world. And how I got there is a whole complicated story in my life, but sort of that Jewish flame, I, you know, I'm a big, big believer in that, you know, it's in you. And I actually use my, um, secular, uh, appearance and presentation to my advantage. So I'm the guy that when anti-Semitism appears its ugly head, I squash it. <laughs> I'm the warrior type. Okay. So um, for me, you get to sort of travel in circles and get away with it. But okay. With that being said, for me, it was a very difficult journey to to uh, to get to my Jewish roots and Judaism. And sort of, I like to say that God had needed to hit me with a mallet a few times directing me into that course. And it had to do with being married um, to a Jewish woman, having five children, having her leave me, having to raise the children on my own and go through a very, very difficult and expensive divorce. And it's sort of, I, I well, we can get into that sort of how it happened to me, but through a very um, interesting set of coincidences, I ended up pretty connected to Judaism and really, you know, a believer and, uh, some and where spirituality made an enormous difference in my life, in my success, and in my happiness. And I would have been surprised if you had told me that when I was a kid, because we were taught um, to sort of ignore it. So that's the big 
overview of my life and we can get into details, but it's been a great journey. And of course, now I'm sitting here, right? On a podcast with a rabbi. What a surprise. There you go. I'm sure it's not your first podcast with a rabbi, although I did take a look at the- No, 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 no. No, you're not my first. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. You're not. That's okay. Not disappointing. That's right. But this will be the best one. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. So, so Matt, let's talk about your, let's talk about the whole story of your professional development, where you are now. Let's start from where you are now mm-hmm. and then how you got there. And then you'll weave in how, you know, we'll hear how the Jewish. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so right now I am the CEO of a company called Greener Process Systems. Our company has a patented and modular device for capturing emissions from ocean-going ships while they're in port and from industrial applications. Think of like a big factory with a smokestack. We actually can capture, using our patented technology, the exhaust and essentially make it pollution-free to simplify things. (laughs) Our systems can capture CO2. We're working on all sorts of really cool science projects. And for me, after being in a very commerce-oriented business my whole life, it's a very rewarding thing to be able to Um, install a technology that will save lots of people's lives, improve their health and improve the environment. And it's not pie in the sky technology that, you know, you hear these things, we're inventing this process that by 2050, you know, we're going to take 2% of something from something. It's only going to cost $8 trillion. Ours is not like that. Our systems are fairly priced. They can and are being installed right now and we're reducing pollution. So that's where I stand right now. Um, I exited my company that I ran for, let's say, 27 years in 2015. Um, And that was a company when I walked in the company, we were four people and did, I don't know, a few hundred thousand dollars a year in business, exited the company with, you know, doing 100 million in sales and 100 people working for us through a very, very tumultuous, difficult electronics and camera business, which was massively affected by business conditions, the internet, digital technology, and all sorts of things. So I get like, if you if you look back over there, like that guy right up there, that silver thing, that's the trophy you get for being person of the year, for reinventing, you know, a really cool business model that saved a lot of businesses in the photo industry. And um, so I see, I, see a lot of, wait, I see a lot of tchotchkes on the shelf behind you. I'm not really sure which one. Uh-huh. Can you want to pick it up and bring it to us? Yeah, I can. It's right there. Yeah. Oh, that one. Okay, got it. Yeah, it's that silver <laughs> crystal thing. You don't want to see it. You can't read it anyway. It's engraved. It says Matt Sweetwood, good looking guy. That's it. You yeah. know, that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, for me, the journey through that business was a very, very trying experience because the business almost collapsed a few times, had to reinvent it a couple of times. And I really believe the reinventions were divinely inspired. I would very much like to take credit for them, but that's not really the way it worked at all. Really, I don't know. It just came to me and it just worked. I mean, so it yeah. would be foolish for me to think that I did it all by myself, right? So that's a narcissistic, right? So we did a couple of things. For example, we were at one point in that business we were the largest distributor of photographic supplies to stores across the country, uh-huh. small stores. And as the Rite Aids and the CVSs and the big box stores and the internet came about, all those little customers went out of business. You know, those co- companies destroyed Main Street, in particular, the camera stores. And we were sitting there in my New Jersey, big New Jersey warehouse one day, like, we're in trouble. 
I got five kids to feed. I got payments to an ex to make and a hundred employees lives depending on me. I better figure this out. So we actually reinvented the business and opened a camera store when all the camera stores went out of business, but I had an idea for how to do it a little differently And that store ended up being the third largest single location store in the country in a few years, invented all sorts of things that essentially all the camera stores use today. And best part is I got to exit that business. So that's really the best part. So I got to survive. I had hair when I entered, no hair, (laughs) but still all the better for the wear. And then allowed me to go off and do lots of other things like write my book. That's my book about being a single dad and running a business. I got, I've consulted companies. I've turned around companies. I'm the guy that um, people call when things are failing. That's my, um, Mm -hmm. so I've turned around two nonprofits on the edge of disaster, three companies on the edge of disaster. That's kind of my, my thing. I'm the fix it guy. Like Like when your toilet's leaking and you know, it's running on the floor, you call that guy. I'm that guy. Uh I never used that analogy before, but okay. You see, this is a new podcast, a new rabbi, right. new things come out. That's right. So, so Matt, let me let me ask: Did this beginning the 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 store that was that was servicing camera retail stores was that your parents' business that you took? That over? was my parents' business. Yeah, right. Got I it. walked into it uh, when I was in grad school, mm-hmm. and one of the actually I worked in it when I was a kid and stuff like that. It was a small business. It was basically a localized business. So one of the first things I did when I got there was I computerized the business. But back then when I did it, it wasn't quite like it is today. That meant I wrote all the software that actually ran the business. I was a computer science guy. Mm-hmm. So um, I, um, I wrote all the code and we computerized the business. We expanded the business vertically and horizontally, did all sorts of really cool things from a marketing perspective and so on, and grew the business. And then the business got smacked down first by the buy-up of all the small stores. And then eventually, my company at one point, we had a five share of all the rolls of film sold in the United States. That's 5% of all the rolls, single rolls of film sold in the United States went through my doors. And within a few years after that, the business was completely gone. So it went through a business cycle that really almost took out the business where the retail, small retail distribution business went. And then eventually our core business, which was selling film, went and we had to reinvent that business a couple of times. Okay. So in order to do that, in order to survive. What was the name of the business? Just curious. It's called Unique Photo. Unique Photo. Today, still running, still doing their thing. So that was that was the name as your parents bequeathed it to you or something? Um, Yeah, they but they it was a wholesale business. So they operated under different names. That became sort of the the consumer retail facing front. So when they had the business, they had a bunch of names that they operated under, but Unique Photo became more of a household consumer name under my um, my brother's uh, stewardship. Okay, so tell us tell us about. I'm very interested in this. As the world changed and the and the big chains started opening up and putting all the small chains out of business, you said you reinvented. You opened up a shop. Uh, you opened up a, a storefront in that was in Manhattan. Yeah, well, what I ended up doing was I ended up doing a a, re, a commercial building flip. I have no idea how this happened because I was able to do this during like 2007, 2008, uh-huh. which if you was a realist commercial real estate crash, right. I actually had bought a new building. I'll explain why I bought that building because it's very similar to the old one. And my old building had a contract on it. And then 
that contract fell through and I needed to close on the other building and needed money and somehow found another buyer to pay me full price, like in two weeks. I have no idea. Totally, totally God's work. I, I, I'm telling you there, I have a few moments in my life that are 100% God saving me, no doubt, which is why I know if I ever get in trouble now, he'll save me. But um, there's just no chance. I'm not even giving enough enough character to the incredibleness of being able to find that other buyer. It's a 60,000 square foot building in a Jersey suburb on a mixed use street in the real estate crash. And I got someone to pay them. It's just miraculous. And the reason for the move was I was moving from a business street. It actually was a street, by the way, if all of you know Kushner, um, he actually, he's a big New Jersey real estate developer among having his whatever son, you know, son and one of the Kushner's son being, you know, connected to the Trump administration. And we all know Jared Kushner. Right. Uh, he had a building on that street. And it was kind of convenient, by the way, because I would have uh, religious people working for me and they had a cafeteria there to make sure that God always provided for me um, to be, have kosher food if I really wanted to. My choice, right? My choice. Okay. So um, put it right there for me. I had no excuse. I could walk to it. And it was really cheap, by the way, he subsidized it. So for like 10 bucks, you get like, you know, full meal. Anyway, so that building was not, you couldn't really run retail. We ran what we called the showroom there, violating the town rules repeatedly. They got upset with us over and over and over again, pretty, pretty much because they didn't like Jews operating there. But that's a whole nother story. Um, so I moved to a warehouse building on a major highway in, in New Jersey, about 15 minutes away which did not have retail approval, but had its zone for retail, which is a whole nother story. I went before the town council and they wanted to deny me. And I gave them the, my version of the Gettysburg address and convinced them. And they eventually gave them this, the story of my parents. And this is a family business and we need to compete with the best buys of the world and all this stuff. And they gave, they eventually granted us retail approval, but I made that switch in that building so that I can open a retail store. Now, what I mean by a retail store is that store was about 6,000 square feet. It looked like a Tiffany store to sell cameras. We built a university to teach photography, which was part of the secret of the store. At one point I'd have a thousand or more people come through the store just to take the classes. That was the model to draw people into the store. Very interesting. Yeah. Draw Great. people into the store. We created an experiential model, which a lot of retail stores do today. So the store was the store was in this Jersey warehouse in this Jersey. It was in the front of the warehouse. So uh -huh. I had the efficiency of a warehouse operation, uh -huh. right? So I used most of the building for warehouse, a good portion for the office operations, and then we had this big retail store all in one building on a highway that saw 100, 150 thousand cars pass it a day. Uh -huh. So okay. it was a really good combination because you know one of the issues that stores have is they never have enough storage space. You have to transport stuff. You don't have office space. You know, we had all of this in one place, but the business also was still a wholesale business. We had other businesses that we acquired along the way and we were operating them all out of this facility. So it was a good business. It was a really good uh, business mix. And the store became very successful. How that became so successful, I'm not exactly sure, but once again, it was God's work. I mean, I, I came up with some good ideas, I think. Not sure where those ideas came from, but nevertheless, they just came to me and they worked. So the, the university that we were running out of the store, was it, it was an accredited college or it was just um, a, actually, a course? Actually, I was in the process of getting accreditation when I left 
I don't think they ever followed through because it's very difficult to do. I was in the process of doing the technical side to get it set up as vocational school. We wanted to teach for, to be able to teach photographers. I don't think they ever completed it, but I was about a year away from completing that, but I need to do that. We, I mean, it was, to me, that was sort of the next step in, in, in running it, getting accreditation because you just, there's lots of good things that lots of bad things that come with that because you have to keep very meticulous records. It's expensive to keep the certification, but I felt like we were ready for that, um, ready for that next step. We did all sorts of really cool things in that store, but the store was visually beautiful. The people that worked in the store were extremely customer focused. Mm -hmm. They, they were photography and customer focused and the feel, I had a coffee bar, a gourmet coffee bar inside, inside the store. And, um, you know, it was a really good environment in there. Really good. Wow. And and the electronics business before that was a handling business. You go in the thing and people trying to sell you as much as they can absolutely sell you. For whole, so, and that was wholesale. That was wholesale. That was, that was the way the retail business. If you went into New York and you would go into one of the electronic stores in New York, the idea is to walk out with all 10 fingers still when you leave, you know, and your shoes. So if you did that, it was a success. I turned that business into a more of a consulting business, more about the joy of photography. Mm-hmm. I mean, we would frequently tell people you don't need to buy new equipment. You need to learn how to use the equipment you have, or we can do something for the equipment and you teach them. When you do that to people and they start to build trust with you, actually, that's really the key to the store was building trust with the customer, which is the idea behind educating the customer. Because, and here's one of my big lines that I would pound into my staff and eventually when I give speeches and stuff, would talk about is that when, when you move from behind the counter to in front of the counter and in front of the customer and you teach them you create a different relationship with them. You go from an adversarial sales, take your money and customer relationship to a mentoring relationship, if you do it genuinely. And so a, a customer trusts a person walking in your store, trusts the teacher a lot more than a salesperson. So if you're teaching them that level of trust, and then they're ultimately more likely to buy from you and recommend you and so on. We were running 80 to 85% of business from that store from referrals which saves you a lot on advertising. Yeah, <laughs> I imagine. I, did you come to this, not just because your parents gave you this business, but also did you have a certain, did you, did you love the hobby of photography? Um, th- I love that question because when I first ran the business, I, I didn't really care. In other words, for me, it was a way to make money, a way to feed the kids, the way to do all of that kind of stuff. And Eventually, when I decided to open up the university, I was like, you need to be a photographer. And so I quickly learned, I used to have some of the most famous photographers in the world walk through there. So I would sit in, I would listen. And fortunately, God gave me a very good eye for photography. I have a pretty well-followed Instagram page. I'm a pretty good photographer. I take pictures all the time. I ended up being like an ambassador. When I left the business, I was an ambassador for for Panasonic, taking pictures for them. I Also, I did it for um, LG. I was one of their, they came to me and asked me to um, use their smartphone. They're out of the smartphone business, not my fault, but um, (laughs) I was actually, so I actually became a pretty good photographer, pretty good at it. Yes. And learned my way. And eventually I would teach on it though. When I would teach in the university, I wouldn't teach photography. I have, I had amazing world-class photographers in one after the next. 
to teach and we had our own teachers. I would teach the business of it and, you know, how to do social media and how to do those things in the business. That would be my kind of thing mixed in with photography. What is the, what is to you as the, what is the magic of photography? What's the appeal? Um, the mat is how it makes you feel when you take a picture. That's what it's about. It's like any art form. Like you go to a museum, you walk in a museum, particularly, this is particularly true. I think when you go to modern art, right? So you go to modern art, you and I can stand in front of the same painting and I can tell you, I think that that's just pointless. And you can sit there and you can say that moves me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really the nature of photography is it allows you to create something that moves you, that reminds you, that connects with you. And whenever you create something like that, I mean, that's what spirituality is about, right? Why is that so alluring? Because you connect with it. It gives you a feeling. It makes you feel it gives you understanding. It just, it just creates that moment, that non-measurable. It's not like you can give it a score. I mean, we can rate the painting, but we can give it a score of eight or 29 or 85 or something. It's how you make you feel. So photography, number one, it's very accessible, right? So I don't, I, I'm not going to create an oil painting, right? Not, not unless it's like a stick figure. And though I probably could put that in an art, modern art museum and it'd probably pass, but that's a whole different discussion. But both both you and I can just take our smartphone or even take a camera and start clicking away. The uh, bar to entry is, is relatively low and you can start creating and doing things that make you feel and create memories and do all of those things. So photography is very powerful. That's why it is essentially the number one feature of a smartphone and why the photography in smartphones continues to get better because it's, it's such a, it's such a draw emotionally i mean there's more pictures being taken now than ever more bad pictures being taken than ever but that is a whole different story ah, of all the all the photographers who came through your business to teach or to to purchase equipment mm -hmm. who's whose work did you do you admire the most um so i have some favorites i have uh, my, one of my favorites is robert farber who many people don't know of, but just an absolutely amazing photographer. His career is just, he's one of those people that, that, how would I put this? You and I, I, I'm a good photographer. I'll tell you, I'm a good photographer. And I can go take a picture and he can just sort of walk up and just like this, click. And he's just got this little magic moment the way he sees the light and and people say that about me but i'm saying it about him okay okay <laughs> and i don't like to be in the same breath he actually did something very interesting which is pretty relevant he's also done but he's taken pictures for the 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 president of mexico he's done commercial shoots for some of the biggest names that you've ever seen his work is really he's he he did a famous wedding shoot for bloomingdale's in the 70s that uses natural light, which is his expertise. It manipulates just great stuff. I love Douglas Kirkland, who actually took that picture of John Lennon, who recently passed away, most famous for the white pictures of Marilyn Monroe, which he got like as an 18 year old, just being lucky, set his whole career, uh, career ahead. I mean, there's just so many extraordinary, talented photographers out there. So I mean, I can go on and on and on and name each one inspiring um, in their own, in their own, in their own way, mm -hmm. you know, with their own style. I take a lot of their style too, a lot of their style when I do my stuff, copy a little of this, a little of that. So, 
Robert, for example, taught me um, that you don't have to have the picture in super sharp focus. I'm a math guy, right? So my degrees are in mathematics, computer science. So for me, I'm always trying to be very precise, very sharp with the picture. He can let a picture go a little out of focus and make it just beautiful, just beautiful. So anyway, sorry, I don't mean to divert into photography, but you asked. No, I asked. No, that's very interesting. Okay, yeah, there's so much, so much to talk about in your in your life, you know. Mm-hmm. You've so, so let's 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 tell the next part of the story. How do you, what happened after you established this? You said you made an exit. Now, where do you go from there? Yeah. So after I did that, I had that moment, you know, where you worked for 27 years, essentially every day for whatever number of hours, scrounging and fighting. Then I'm like, well, Matt, you're unemployed. <laughs> that was my that was my that was my reaction. So you're unemployed. Let's do something. So, okay, what are we going to do? Um, so when I went out, as I, I said, okay, look, I can consult people. I can really help people. So I sort of formed a consulting and, and coaching business. And I've done that. And I still have a few clients that I just, I don't drop people. So even though I'm busy with my own company, I, I still work with them. And I did that for a while. I wrote my book, Leader of the Pack. And um, I... Uh, Eventually, I did, I did speaking and just kept myself very, very busy doing that. I've, I've written 150 articles on everything from business to single parenting to spirituality to all sorts of things like that. And uh, I've consulted a bunch of companies, ran some nonprofits for a while, and then um, ended up here in Greener. And that's been my essentially six or seven years uh, in between. And moved from the Northeast, where I was in New Jersey, of then New York City, after I sold my business, I moved into New York City, uh-huh. got a nice apartment overlooking like Wall Street and stuff. Loved that for a while until New York City became uninhabitable for humans. And then um, I moved to Florida before COVID. Before, before COVID. COVID. Okay, so it was uninhabitable for humans even before COVID. Before, before, right. I want to emphasize <laughs> that as I actually predicted that everything that was going to happen there, it was so obvious to me it was going to happen. I used to say that, I used to say that um, it's not a question of when it, if we would have a terrorist attack, it would just be when. And one could say that COVID was in the same, you know, playing field as a terrorist attack. Mm-hmm. And the result on the city for me was catastrophic. The riots, the lack of law enforcement, the escalating expenses, the just overall lack of morality that exists from top to bottom in the city make it very difficult to, to live there. Look, the cost of living in terms of money and wear and tear are very high there, though I miss the city. I love city life and I like the energy and the vibe, as you probably can guess. I am high energy person. So but anyway, Florida is an amazing business environment. The government here has set it up in a way that just money, business opportunity and Jewish people are flowing here at a um, very rapid rate. True. Okay, so Matt, now a lot of your story, for instance, your book, is revolving around your your marriage and and your and raising these five kids and, and that's and right com- and managing out. the business at the same time, of course. Right. Yes. So, is it, what can you share with us from that that you know in our brief time? Yeah, of course. So, so my biggest advice, which I give to everybody, is if you marry the wrong person, you make the mistake of a life. So, marry carefully. That's really what it comes down to. I married a woman who was disordered. You know, she had psychological conditions, which I want to emphasize are not an excuse for bad behavior. It's just like when you walk into a court of law, you know, what they consider 
competent to stand trial. If you know the difference between right and wrong, as far as I'm concerned, any kind of psychological condition is not an excuse. She's a woman who I had five children with. Um, all my children, by the way, received bar and bat mitzvahs. I don't know exactly why I did that, but somehow I felt the need. And um, and um, she left us when the children were 18 months. Youngest was 18 months, still in diapers, through eight years old. Left me with it and then tried to use the court system to destroy all of us and take everything that she could, which the New Jersey court system was very agreeable to. Um, ended up getting a very rough divorce judgment and all in full custody of all the children. So I raised them through, and that process was the most transformative time for me looking back. Um, I didn't feel like that at the time. It was a very, very difficult time for me because I was, I'm just a still, I'm sort of in between that old school and kind of newer school mentality. In my day, you know, fathers got up in the morning they kissed the wife, they patted the kids on the head, they took their briefcase, they went to work. And as long as the paychecks were coming home, that was, you know, you threw the ball on the weekend. And that was it. All of a sudden, I was left with five kids who were traumatized for a whole assorted reasons, which if you read the book, you'll find out why and what the mom did to them. And uh, with no clue how to manage any of this or desire. And I had to quickly um, figure out how to do that. And with God's help, um, I gained strength and went from a boy to a man, figured out how to lead them to success, which is the subtext of my book, right? How a single dad of five led himself, his business and his kids from disaster to success, because mm -hmm. there was a disaster looming for there. The same time I was going through one of those business transformations where the business almost collapsed, being ordered to pay all sorts of money and just crazy times. And uh, I manned up eventually, and eventually figured out how to raise the kids into successful humans, which they all are today, all graduated top schools, all successful. I have um, three grandchildren along the way. Three of them are, yeah, three of them are married. I lose track after a while. Three of them are married and um, life is all good now. But for me, that was it. That was the moment where you sort of get out of that cloud that a lot of people live in. And without the help of uh, spirituality, I wouldn't have got there, which came to me through an actual amazing story of how it really, and I talk about this very heavily in my book. You know, when I market a book, I, you know, when you market a book, you sometimes market the book to the audience that you think is most likely to read it. So I market my book as a overcoming journey, a um, memoir of how you overcome, but it's really a book about spirituality, how these events which had happened throughout my life, all of a sudden came together and provided me with the tools and the strength in order to overcome all of these hardships. And some of them are so outrageous coincidences are so, are so like, there's no way they could be coincidences. There's just no way. And I'll give you a story if you want. I'll tell you a really. Of course, yeah. You want, I want to hear how... my book, but I have about five or six of them in my book that are just like, what? No, you know, people read like, no, that didn't happen. And then I'll just send them to the person I referred to in the book and they'll tell them, yeah, that happened, happened just like that. So I was going through a very, very difficult time with my wife. The house was in an abusive state, let's just put it that way. And I decided to scoop up my kids and go to Florida and take them away to Florida. 
So we went to Miami and I hadn't been to Miami since I was a kid because my, my grandparents lived in Florida. I hadn't been there in a long time. I took them, went to Florida. We hung out for a while. Coming back, you know, it was just like a long weekend. Coming back, we get to the airport. Kids make you late. As we all know, when you have kids, they make you late all the time. Get to the late. This was, and this was at a period where the lines in the airport were, well, they still are bad, but was very bad. There was no TSA pre, no nothing. I get to the airport and we're going to miss our flight. We're in this long, long, long line. I get this idea. I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to upgrade my ticket, my ticket to first class. I'm going to stick these kids who I've had enough of in the back of the plane. They were old enough. You know, they're like, you know, the youngest one was whatever, 10, you know, whatever, right. whatever it was, you know, not, not no problem putting it back there. Because if you upgrade your ticket to first class, that time you get to go in the, the short line and everything. So I did it. It was a hundred bucks or whatever. Nothing. I don't know why it was so good, but because that's God, if it was 500, I probably wouldn't have, but it was a hundred bucks. So I did it. A hundred bucks back then was, was a lot more now. No, it wasn't. It's okay. It's a 200 bucks today. <laughs> okay. still, still probably would have done it. Okay. So um, I get on the plane. I go sit down. Kids go into the back. I'm like, this is going to be a good two and a half hours from Miami back to New Jersey. And uh, I go sit down and I go sit down next to this very attractive woman. And I'm like, flight just got better, right? I'm sitting next to her. Keep in mind, I've been in this terrible marriage for a long time. I think, so I'm going to practice my charming, not that I would do anything, but you know, it's fun to sit next to an attractive woman. I'm going to practice my, um, my skills, my game. So I start talking to her. She's being very nice to me. All of a sudden, another woman walks on the plane and they know each other. So she's like, oh, whatever. I don't remember their names, whatever. Shakes her hand. She goes to me and... She, was, she goes, I'm in first class too, but I'm sitting right back there. Would you mind changing seats with me? And I'm like, okay. Okay. So I go back, I go sit in her seat, you know, a little bit dejected, but okay. There's nobody sitting next to me. So I got like two first class seats. I'm like, okay, not a bad trade when you really think about it. Right. So just before the door of the plane closes, this man walks on the plane. It's a from guy, guys from. Walks on, sits right next. Our audience might not know the terminology. Uh, uh, Orthodox Jew, uh, observant Jew. Orthodox Jew, right? Okay. Not with payas and full hat, but close. Okay. (laughs) Walks on and sits down next to me. His name's Jeffrey. Starts talking. He goes, um, he goes, how's the family? And we get talking a little bit. And I tell him this story that I am going to go back home and I am going to kill somebody. Very seriously, I say it to him. I say, there's a, there's a person living in my house, a relative of my wife, who has been abusing my children. And I've allowed it to go on too long. And I said, the next time I do it, I, and I explained to him exactly what I was going to do to him. So he looks at me. You know, after talking a while, so he knew I wasn't a lunatic, though I was probably a little loony at the time. Mm-hmm. He, goes, he goes, Matt, he goes, you know what's really going to help you? He goes, here's what I recommend you do. He goes, write this down. He goes, and you have to promise me you're going to do this. I'm like, okay, Jeffrey, I'm going to promise you. We became friends. We got connected and everything. So he writes down on this piece of paper, aish.com. And he says, go up. They have a daily email. There's a rabbi who, who writes this daily advice. He goes, I think it'll be good for you. He senses that I'm resistant, right? You know, it's resistant to Judaism. I'm resistant. So he tries this little gentle. 
some, he goes, you have to promise me. I'm like, okay. I said, when I give you my word, I will. He goes, you'll really like it. It's not like, you know, go pray for five hours a day. He goes, it's very practical life advice. Go do it. So I get back, I go back, I get in that night. I, you know, go through my notes or, oh yeah. Okay. I remember I sign up the next day I get an email. It's called the daily lift mm-hmm. by a rabbi called rabbi Pliskin. Okay. Ah. Okay. Who's written whatever 40, you know, we know now who's written 42 books. He's great. Written 42 books, done all of these things. Um, so the first email, the subject of the email is revenge. Hmm. So I read this thing and it says, revenge, it's explicitly prohibited by the Torah. You don't seek revenge. It serves no purpose whatsoever. And in fact, releasing your anger and releasing this hostility you have is not for the other person. It's for you. I, I mean, I swear, I looked at it. I, I'm a techie. Remember I told you, I started mm-hmm. looking at the header of the emails to see if this guy, Jeffrey, didn't send, didn't, right. <laughs> didn't send it to me. <laughs> I'm like, what? So I started subscribing to those emails from H.com. The mm-hmm. end of the story is I ended up chairman of the board of New York branch through another set of crazy coincidences along the way. I even got to meet Rabbi Pliskin in the most amazing coincidence ever. Okay. At some later point in my life. So I can, I can go on with these stories, which, you know, you might say you're crazy, you're making them up and stuff, but they're my journey. And I know they're true. I'm not crazy myself. So um, in any event that from that point on, I really started to pay attention. I started to connect. And I will tell you that connection to to the spiritual side not just age because age is just one vehicle there's lots of good vehicles like yours that go out there and reach out to people and touch people and you know that's why quite frankly that's why i'm on the podcast because of what you do is so transformative it's actually in some ways the most important work we do as jews is to reach out to those that don't have the benefit of the connection or have lost the connection and bring them in so for me what you do you know I am most impressed and you know one of the reasons like I said to be to be here right like like that. <laughs> thank and, you Matt that's very meaningful and and I appreciate that very right. much you yeah, can thanks. cut that and put that in the front by the yeah. way the, the pockets so um so for me you know that connection and the mo- and the connections that came after that were what really got me through what's considered actually by many the the roughest divorce in the history of New Jersey and a Supreme Court case that came out of it that I won, and a whole slew of other things, which if you read the book, you'll wow. you'll get to understand. So, and why this happened to me, I don't know. Actually, I do know, because this gave me, uh, forced me to, you know, God challenges you to force you to grow. So I guess I needed to grow a lot. And because of the things that I've learned along the way, I've been able to coach a whole bunch of people from bad places to really good places and fix a bunch of businesses from bad places and bring them to good places. As part of your, your coaching strategy, you say people reach out to you when something needs to be fixed. So it's part of your coaching strategy, telling, telling about and teaching about the, the need for connection to something greater, to the spiritual, to the infinite. I don't have a formula, but in many cases, I do recommend that in some, in some cases, the people, you only can do that if people are open to it. Mm-hmm. You have to either get them to be open to it or they have to be open to it. If you walk up to a person, you know, I have somebody I do business with that has 
uh, mixed family. The, the mother's Jewish and the father was not. And he went to school and was tormented, had a bar mitzvah, was tormented in school, abused, abused by Jewish community, according to him, and the non-Jewish community, because he was called all sorts of things, from a pizza bagel to all sorts of things. And he's very close to it. But I, you know, I try when I can to sort of bring him. I'm actually <laughs> starting up a business, again, another business that we're working on, I'm working on with him, that's going to have religious Jewish management. So he's going to be hanging around guys that that are, you know, full believers. It's going to be kind of interesting to see how that goes. And I think that God sent me those people to help me run the business so that he can become more connected and maybe me too. Wow. Okay, I always so now- look at it like that. I never like to think that we're acting alone because if you do that, you're making a mistake. It just doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. See, I have... I, it's funny because as I'm talking to you, I realize that some people connect to spirituality because they were brought up with the way they're studied like yourself. You know, they're, they're rabbis. They're, they grew up in a very conservative or very spiritual religious background. For me, all of my access to spirituality is practical, which is, very, is a very interesting phenomenon if you think about it. It's a very interesting phenomenon and it keeps coming to me in a practical way. Just like, why'd you reach out to me? Right. Why? How'd you get, I don't know. Right. Right. So here I am, I'm having a conversation with a rabbi, a very practical one about business. Probably if your podcast was about, you know, the Torah passage, I would be um, probably not the guy for you. You might not even like my interpretation, but no, you want to have, we're talking business and things like that. And we're connected and talking Judaism and spirituality. When you say practical, your all of your Judaism, your spirituality is practical. Is that because you gained tools through hundred percent and how to deal with your situations? It is totally fused into my personality. It inspires me all the time to do what it is that I have to do. I I I view life through that way. I view honesty through that way telling the truth through that way. Uh, Everything is through that lens now. It's become part of who I am. Remember, I began by saying I'd become more connected to Israel and the cause there and understanding of of what's going on there. I was already anyway, because I'm sort of a political um, animal. Um, But for me, it's the the situation couldn't be more clear. Um, And just my daughter was married in Israel, made sure that that happened. That wasn't for us which is kind of shocking if you think about from, you know, where I, where I grew up. You, you mentioned right at the beginning how you're the guy who, who stands up and crushes anti-Semitic, uh, anti-Semitic yeah. activity. So can you describe that? Like, uh, oh, yeah. Oh yeah, for yeah. Sh- oh, yeah, for sure. And God puts it there for me. I'll give you another amazing story. Another amazing story. I went to see, to visit my daughter. And I probably can say where because it's in, a, it's in articles I've written. I went to visit my daughter and um, I had my first grandchild and uh, she's out in the Midwest and she was actually in Wisconsin at the time. Okay. Did you have a grandchild? Oh, no, 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 totally wrong. I went to see her for her birthday. I went to surprise her for her birthday. It was before, it was before, before she had, we had a child. It was long before. And, and I actually, I connected, it was a surprise for her, but I connected with her husband. 
And I said, I want to surprise her. He's a doctor. Um, and I wanted to surprise her. And I, and I said to him, you know, he said, I'm going to take a little bit of time off work. I'm going to show you around the Wisconsin, Milwaukee area. And, um, and we'll, you'll come and surprise her later. I'll spend a little time with you before. Like, great. So he, I think he picked me up from the area or I met him or something. And he takes me to this place on Lake Michigan mm-hmm. that has this famous sculpture. It's a sculpture by a sculptor named Jaume Plensa. If you Google Jaume Plensa, you will see he's one of the world's top, if not the world's top sculptor. He has sculptures in Hudson Yards in Manhattan, mm-hmm. in countries all over the world. He's in just places everywhere. His, his stuff commands crazy prices. I mean, millions of dollars. So he takes me to this sculpture that's sitting overlooking the lake. It's a picture of, it's a bust of a man mm-hmm. overlooking the lake made of letters. The, the sculpture itself has just random letters all mm-hmm. around. It's part of his style. He's made a bunch of these. He, we drive to the lake. It's a beautiful setting. I take out my camera. I take a couple of pictures because I'm a photographer. Right. And, I, and he goes, come over here. Look at the sculpture. I walk up to the sculpture and I'm looking at it from the side. And I'm like, this, my, my son-in-law, I'm like, come over here. I said, you see what it says right there in the sign? I said, it says cheap Jew. He wrote it out in the sculpture. He goes, no, can't be. Because like 10,000 people walk by this thing every day. It's in the most popular place. He goes, where, where? I don't see it. I go, come over, look. See, there's the letter right there. He looks at it. He goes, oh, oh my God. I see it. Uh, the end of the story is I wrote a blog, published it. Seven days later, a truck came and took that sculpture away. The whole sculpture? They the whole just... sculpture. They took it away and he remanufactured it and took it out. Wow. Denied it all the way. Was on the news, was all over the place. I've done stuff like that over and over. But I always say that God brought me to that spot. Literally, a million people walked by it, never saw it. I saw it in exactly five seconds. We found it in another sculpture of his too here in Florida, by the way. It was in a mall. Except this time I didn't, I decided, I took, when I did that, I took a lot of hate. I mean, death threats. It was, I was on the news. It was, they came after me. I mean, I don't care. Just bring it on. No problem. You want to come? Death threat, come. Don't do it in internet. Just come see me in person, please. Um, so I, I said, you know, I'm not going to do that this time. Let's see if we can do this a little bit more behind the scenes. So I took a picture of this in the mall here and I sent it to mall management and then sent a copy of my article and all the news clippings from the previous one and said, probably you should do something about this since about half of your patrons to this mall are Jewish. He had a similar kind of thing. He had the message. He had the message. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So he's an anti-Semitic guy and he gets a kick out of weaving these things into his into his i don't know how many more he's got like this but Mm -hmm. um, it's not my cause to travel the world and look at his his sculptures and and stuff like that Mm -hmm. so i had mathematicians calculating the odds on randomly (laughs) because you know the letters are random and i'm like no 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 no, no." he assembles i had a sculptor come to my defense a a pretty well-known sculptor said when you assemble a sculpture like this, you know every single inch of it. The, putting it in by hand, you see it. No, 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 no. He knows it's there. He knew it was there. It's not coincidence. So anyway, 
that's the kind of thing I can go to many stories like that. Wow. I'm the guy who got so sent. I don't know. Yeah, I feel that- like I feel privileged that I got sent to do it. And he sent someone who had a big social platform who was willing. God sent me there because he knew I would do something. Maybe other people saw it and just never did anything. So the coincidence, I was doing a good deed, going to see my daughter. I was spending time with my son-in-law. Just, I'm telling you, I saw it within 10 seconds. Wow. Like it just came before my eyes. I saw. So I've had stuff like that happen many times, many well, times. I- I've, I've been noticing, let's say on, on LinkedIn, there's somebody and on social media, yeah. there's, there's a Yosef Haddad, there's some, an, an Israeli Arab who's very outspoken about yeah, Israel, yeah. Israel. And, and, and what you're saying, I'm, I'm interested the putting yourself as, as positioning yourself as a fearless defender, uh, a, a battle, someone who battles against anti-Semitism and, and not worrying about those people that threaten your life. How do you, how do you, how do you not worry about that? I mean, I, God's got my back, number one, and uh, Smith and Wesson has my front, so I'm I'm uh, I'm feeling pretty good about it. <laughs> okay, I never. By the way, you can use that. I like that line. I may use that line again. That's a new, newly made up one. Here, that's, you, that's, I just, that's spoken like as somebody lives in Florida. <laughs> I yes, it is. So I just got sent this book, and this book I'll got sent history to me. Of Ant- I'm looking at just for those who are listening to the audio. Yeah. Israel R. B. Tone, a brief history of anti-Semitism, a brief and visual history of anti-Semitism. I mean, it's like a serious. Oh. Someone oh. just sent me this book to talk about it on my social media. Actually, it was sent to me by Dove Hakain, you know, the New York congressman. Okay. The former congressman. Uh, yeah. For, sure. Sure. yeah, he sent it to me. He saw my, because I've communicated, I've, I've helped promote his post. He's very outspoken on anti-Semitism in New York because New York's got problems, as we know. Now, because the administration doesn't really care about it or actually likes it. And, um, and uh, he sent it to me to, you know, ask me to read it and review it and stuff and stuff like that. And so it's a beautiful book, actually. It's an amazing book. Like I wrote a book, but this book is like the, like the, the real, like the real thing, you know, heavy, (laughs) heavy pages. I can't imagine how long it takes to put a book together like Like this. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like a piece. Yeah. It's by Israel Bitten. Mm -hmm. Israel Bitten, just so you can see, everybody can see. So so anyway, I don't know. I just keep getting connected to this stuff. It just keeps coming my way. Wow. Okay. So that, that uh, our time is, is coming to a close. But there's so I, I'm interested. Where where are you going? I mean, business. I hear you have you have your your account. You're consulting. You have you're happy with where you are. At least uh, seems a CEO of this of Greener Process right? System. Yep. Greener Process Systems. Where are you going? Where are you in your in your Jewish I can't tell by by your dress or anything about what you affiliate with, but I, I hear right. how you're talking. Where do you consider yourself now and where are you going in your in your Judaism and your spirituality? I don't know. So I moved to Florida three years ago and I lost a little bit of my connection because of that. And ironically, where I am here in Palm Beach County, mm-hmm. I mean, Palm Beach County is like 50% Jewish. Right. And so because there's it's so established. This is, I, I guess, really me being the most honest is because it's so established. It's very hard to find a place where actually a guy like me fits in. You know, I'm in a community right here that has flipped over. Um, the older people have moved out. The younger people have moved in. Two very orthodox shuls are within walking distance of the gate. So the houses are turning over. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can go there, but I don't speak Hebrew. It's a very, very hard 
to connect there. You have people there that have that are just very, very connected to the organization. So you're always a little bit of an outsider. It's hard to get in. And then there are the organization, I want to say this delicately. I don't know how to say this delicately. Um, let's, I'll try to just, just steer around it where I, I've met the rabbi and I don't really like her. Okay. Okay. And so when I meet the rabbi and I don't really like her, I have a problem going there because they wear masks, they require vaccines, they talk about social issues that sound like they're, um, you know, far left, let's put it that way. And I just, and it's hard to find for me that sort of more practical approach. I actually found it in New York. I actually still stay in contact with some of the Chabad rabbis that I've helped out because I've helped them out in New York too, somehow got connected with them and ended up helping there too mm-hmm. a little bit. And I still keep in contact with them, but I've not really found my place here. Hmm. I will tell you that I've not found a place. You know, one of my sons moved down here with me and we've gone to shul a couple of times, you know, trying to find a place where we're comfortable. And I, I don't know, I haven't liked the experience yet, but I'm working on it. Okay. I'm working on it. <laughs> and I'm working on sort of making that connection to a really good Jewish organization. I'm very squeezed for time right now because when you run a startup, you just, it's very, very draining. I like it, but it's very draining. But I, I really would like to get connected to a powerful organization and really make a difference. I was chairman of the board of one in New York and would love to be in a similar position again here, or just not, I don't be chairman, but just work with the organization to use my skills and help. We'll find our way. I know, you know how I know? Because God will give it to me. That's yeah, God's got your back. That's right. He'll just give it to me. He'll, the, no, oh, he's gonna, no, no, that's not what's going to happen. He's going to need something fixed. He's going to need something. Nobody else is going to be able to fix it. He's going to need something is going to need help. Something is along the way. And I'm going to get stuck there, whether I like it or not. <laughs> okay. Matt, I'm looking forward to hearing that story unfold. And uh, I, pre- I appreciate so much that you gave your time to us and you shared so much. And there's so much more underneath the surface and if anyone wants to find out more, of course, they can buy your book, right? That's the number mm-hmm. one. Yep. And they can go to msweetwood.com. Yeah, and I'm at msweetwood everywhere. Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever, Instagram, whatever. I, I was an early adopter of social media. So at msweetwood everywhere. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Okay, so we'll find out much more and, and listen to podcasts. And I know you're a podcaster. I, I hope I, I did okay. And... I think, I think you, you, you did well. We'll see. No, okay. no, it's really good when it's when it's a free and open conversation. It's always best. And you're led your questions to really for me to open up a lot, which is probably more than I've ever done on any other podcast. So wow. the best uh, one. OK, that like we, like we thought. Thank you, okay. Rabbi. I'm very grateful for you having me on. I really mean that. OK, it's an opportunity for us to connect. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Have a great day. You too. You've just listened to another great episode of Our Tribe, the podcast, brought to you by the Podcast Fellowship and hosted by Rabbi Tovia Kopstein. Tune in each week, every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time to hear more great episodes of Our Tribe, the podcast. If you have any suggestions or questions, email us at ourtribe at podcastfellowship.org. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to help the tribe thrive.